Today we're talking to Dr. Chelsea Cervantes Deblois, lead climate security expert at the Department of State. Dr. Cervantes Deblois talks about her research on the nexus between human migration, climate change, and conflict. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, and welcome to Through the Human Geography Lens, a podcast brought to you by the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group, or WWHGD. I'm Terry Ryan. And I'm Gwyneth Holtz. And today we're here with our guest, Dr. Chelsea Cervantes Deblois, a lead climate security expert from the U.S. Department of State. We invited Chelsea today to chat with us about the complex relationships between climate, migration, and human security as we prepare for an upcoming event on this topic. Chelsea, thank you for joining us. It's great to speak with you again. Thank you for having me. I'm quite excited to be here. So your research focuses on the impacts of human environmental systems. Can you explain what that means and give us some examples? Of course. So when we think about human environmental systems, what we're understanding is the relationship of the society of humans and also of the environment. Now, this also can include uh, ecosystems as well, but we're not going to discuss that because that's a separate um, focus. But specific examples when we think about human environmental systems, especially in the line of work I do with climate change, is the impact of the relationship of climate and conflict. You also have the relationship of responding to um, climate through migration patterns. You also have the lack of response, which is actually would be called displacement, where you don't have the choice to do that. So yes, it is a response, but lack of an active response, meaning you you stay, you're trapped. So these would be considered the intersections between the two, but also understanding how we, as you know, as data scientists or as social scientists or a climatologist, we try to understand the relationship of what we are asking and how, and so for example, why are these populations moving to this location? And we need to understand all the different inputs that affect that. So oftentimes we would think of the drivers. So there are migration drivers, and those are oftentimes social, political, economic, cultural, demographic, or ecological factors. You can also put in infrastructure. And now when we look at these drivers, these are different incentives of why people are moving in response to climate change or why there is a potential outbreak of conflict or repeated conflict event that happens. So one of the studies I have that I'm um, hoping to publish soon is looking and understanding the ethnic conflict clashes in Kyrgyzstan in southern Kyrgyzstan, and so using the nexus of climate migration and conflict and looking at the intersections. And one of the main arguments made is that we can't just silo as at a climate-related event. It's actually climate exhibiting or further exasperating things that are already in motion. So political instability, there's already previous ethnic conflict in the region, and so understanding how those intersect and at what level and measure they are, so weighing how those inputs impact each other, then we can understand the relationship of the human environmental system within that context. So oftentimes, if you want to get anything away from this, a little blurb that I just showed you or told you about, it would be to think about things when we look at climate and the impact of people making decisions to it as either it's a global issue, but we need to think at a local scale. So we have a global issue that's shared throughout the world, but looking at it at a scale will then better understand how to model with those with those specific contexts. So how to respond to 
the social factors, the political factors, they differ in each continent, in each country. Yes, there are similarities and patterns, but there will be differences. So when we understand how to approach it, when we're doing modeling, we're doing spatial analysis, then we can then come back and look at the comparisons of the two and how they're similar. I'm actually really glad you said that because I was about to say, well, that just seems easy. <laughs> um, as I thought, well, how would you dissect this? You're looking at all these different drivers, all the intersections, but really it's the small bites of an elephant. Like, let's look at the local and then and potentially there's some some scaling across global um, to try to understand these these different societal challenges. Well, one of the main challenges. You would really have to study this for a long time, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) That are different creative avenues to understand or think about it. And one of the things that, you know, is shared within migration research, but also in climate research, and then when you're intersecting them in human environmental systems frameworks, is understanding what data you have. Mm -hmm. What is your data? What data you don't have? Now, I would like to make it clear, it's not that we... Some would say, oh, well, you have data, so how can you say that you don't have data? Okay, yes, we have data, but we don't have the data that we are accustomed to having when we look at migration, for example. We don't have a standardized system or format of recording the type of migration. So, for example, there is no sole institution that's responsible at a global scale to document solely that this person migrated in response to a climate event. We don't have that. Mm -hmm. So when we have definitions of someone moving to a new location due to climate, it's mixed. And that therefore creates a bias that also creates inconsistencies when we do certain specific geospatial modeling to understand climate migration. So that's a big challenge we have. So understanding how we define terms will then help us set up the stage and data collection. And then within that data collection, we understand how we can use those different inputs for the models we use. So one of the main problems we have when it comes to challenges of what is data, right? Because people say, oh, yeah, we have data. You you obviously have a census data. So you have these years. Why doesn't it work? Well, they're usually, I would say, incomplete and not at the fault of anyone, but more of how it was collected and how we understand it. So it now requires more of a creative approach and using different types of data sets that maybe we haven't thought about before to put together to then get a better understanding of how to track these patterns and relationships. So you may ask, what are the challenges of data, data collection, not having climate migration data? Well, yes, there are institutions and organizations that do collect data. But again, like I said, the standardization across the board is not there yet. Ideally, we're hoping to get to that goal. But one of the things is underreporting. So underreporting is of sure, and this is true even with like population data that, you know, you have some recorded data, but you don't have it all. So we have to consider that as a major factor. Also, like I said, little collected data, but also there's not necessarily a category where you have links between conflict and a disaster displacement. So having that category then will allow us to have a standardization, like why did you move? So oftentimes when we think of refugees, they move due to a political situation, a religious situation, um, to their sex, and that is a category that you can check off. We yet don't have that category for a climate refugee, which is somewhat a sensitive topic because it doesn't fit the definition. But more and more, we see these events of people responding to climate events and having 
the choice to move or having needing to due to the loss of homes, livelihoods, or their cultural social networks. So now it's going back to the definitions and understanding how how do we define these people that are in this category that's to, that's growing in front of us. Another issue or challenge that we deal with is comprehensive data sets. Like I mentioned, sure we have data, but it's not it's not the data that we want or we're accustomed to. So now this requires creative thinking. And we may require different types of data we conventionally haven't used to understand things. So for example, um, in the climate migration conflict nexus framework, when I was doing the field work in Kyrgyzstan and trying to understand how can I predict what area of Kyrgyzstan is gonna be most susceptible to a repeated ethnic event, I had to look for climate data. Well, I didn't have great climate data. What do I do next? So then I started using raster imagery, satellite imagery. Then I had to figure out, okay, so how do I know people are moving in response to this and not this? What are my drivers? So that required in-country fieldwork, talking to different uh, farmers as well as uh, produce sellers, understanding their motivations, understanding their lack of ability, their vulnerability, to leave their location so they would be then trapped so they wouldn't have that choice. So, but it was, it required me to do different avenues and collect different sources to put all these different drivers into the model to then understand, okay, the weights of importance for each factor or driver that I inserted into it. That's really fascinating. And Gwyneth and I have studied or read about this all of like two to three months. <laughs> um, so we were about a, about an inch deep on the topic. But the one thing that I remember one day over a, a WebEx call, we just looked at each other and it was like this, you know, profound for us at the, the moment was people don't know why they're migrating. They may not know that it's a, a climate motivated migration. And so you would have to think like, it's not just pulling census data. It's like, what's in the survey questions. If there was a, a survey administered to, to better, you know, create a data set on why people are actually leaving yeah, where they've lived. Exactly. And it's also, you know, recording who is moving, right? So for Aside from climate migration, just thinking in general of collecting demographic data, uh, an excellent example is that people oftentimes, I published a paper with some colleagues on invisible populations, who's not being counted for, right? Because oftentimes the most vulnerable people are not counted into these models and we don't identify them. So there is definitely a level of bias within the models that we use. So for example, a demographic one would be Actually, very recent, in 2015, Mexico's national census created a category that has um, a section for people to check off the uh, Afro, Afro-Mexicans, so African descent that are Mexican citizens. Yes, and they were never recognized, actually, before in the national census. But as of 2015, wow. they established that. Yeah, and you people thought, I didn't know these people exist. Yes, they existed. They just didn't have a category for us to un, to identify them. And then when you do certain types of demographic research or of the like, wow. now you have a population you can account for. This is a similar situation in the United States when I was working 
um, on a project that looked at Native American um, populations. And oftentimes in the rural areas, they would, we, we could call them invisible in the context of they're not being recorded. And it oftentimes is lack of access to these populations, but also to one of the things that a professor and I were looking at was she used, she coined the term Dr. Um, Caroline Leiber at University of Minnesota, the mental migration, this idea of people identifying themselves differently in the censuses over the years. And so that is impressive because you, she says at one point when we looked at the data, you have a huge boom of Native Americans being identified in the census, but where did they come from? Well, this idea of maybe one census year, someone that say is half Native American and half um, Anglo-Saxon, they would say I'm you know, white, Anglo-Saxon. And then the next year they say, I'm native. Mm -hmm. And then maybe there's a category where they have the option, oh, I'm both. Sure. So again, where's the standardization? How are we collecting this? So this is, I I have a big thing about definitions. We need a definition, a shared understanding, because this goes into how climate migration specifically is shared across disciplines, right? I'm a geographer. I'm a human geographer trained in geospatial sciences and demography and cultural regional expertise. However, there are social scientists, there are climatologists, there are forest uh, people who study forestry, ecology, and they also look at climate migration. People I know who look at um, migration of animals in response to climate, not necessary people. So these are, you know, this is a topic, like I said, it's a global issue but we need to understand it at a local scale and do comparisons. That's one of the arguments I make. Um, and we can do this through pilot projects, case studies. But why, you may ask, why is it, you know, a, a topic shared among different disciplines and research sectors? Because it impacts all of us, but it just impacts us differently. So going to the beginning, what we discussed about drivers, we have social, political, demographic, cultural well, if you think about it, you have anthropologists who look at oftentimes cultural other aspects. You have political geographers, you have political scientists, you have sociologists who look at, you know, um, urban settings and the educational system. So, you know, very strong demographic focus. You have ecological factors. So it's to me, it's very exciting that we have a shared issue, the issue is not exciting, but that we all experience it, but we experience it through different ways. And we're all trying to address it from different avenues, which is great, because that really does push or support the idea of interdisciplinary research or collaborations to better address the human environmental issues that we're dealing with. So I was hoping we could go back to this data collection topic, because I feel like sure. earlier, like before you answered Terry's last question, I was going to ask you, like, why don't, why isn't there just better surveys? <laughs> why don't we just ask these questions? Why aren't we just more clear with our definitions? Like, can you address that? It seems from an outsider's perspective, we're not looking at this every day like you are. It seems like the answer is like sort of not simple, but it seems straightforward. <laughs> like, why is it not straightforward? Uh, that's an excellent question and probably even above me. Um, but when it comes to standardization, it has to be an agreement among many different institutions and you know individuals and groups, right? This is why we have like COP twenty seven from the United Nations, uh, or you know the COPs, the parties discussing climate, you know the Paris Agreement. Um, these are carefully discussed topics, but oftentimes 
take a long process to have things definite and agreed upon. And then, of course, things get amended or adjusted as the years go on and as society, you know, shifts as well as the environment and how we respond to the environment. So it does, it's it's quite funny. I was told that the best PhD dissertations are the most simplest things, but they definitely <laughs> take quite a few years and a lot of hardship and sweat and tears to complete. So, yes, the most simple things are actually things we should be diving into but are they actually simple in the process and the logistics of understanding, defining, and agreeing on something with other people? Not necessarily. Right. Um, which I guess makes it fun to do the research and, you know, gives us purpose and intention on how we address things. But it's it's not as easy as you would assume generally. Like, like me naively going into a PhD like, oh, this is so fun and easy and <laughs> not realizing <laughs> uh, the rigor. You're like how many years later? No, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, they have the joke that the more you learn, the less you actually know. And so I think right. that's oftentimes the challenge is when we have to do international collaboration and standardization on things. Of course, I'm not an expert on that necessarily and that logistics um, or have done that to a great depth compared to many other people. But like anything, it, it does take careful measures and discussions and data, <laughs> data to support mm-hmm. certain policies or support certain things that are going to be established for the international community. But again, going back to this data question is we need to standardize things. So it's coming to the idea of definitions and then having support or at least pilot projects or at least something showing patterns that this needs to move forward. Right. And you mentioned like the interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary nature of this must make that just even more complex because each discipline has their own priorities, I'm sure, when it comes to this. Oh, definitely. And also definitions. You know, that's something I have learned as a, I call myself a mixed Methodist as a human geographer. I learned very quickly in my career that I have to be very clear on the term I'm using and how I understand it through my lens, because oftentimes it can mean a different thing or an implied different approaches in another discipline. And so for me, that's something I'm very sensitive to early on, because even in everyday colloquial language, one person, you know, if you go to the Midwest and they say, do you want some pop? (laughs) If you go to the West Coast, that means soda, right? I mean, it's just a simple terminology that you think of what... But it has a different, you know, reason or the bubbler. That's something I've learned, you know, the just words and how you understand them. And then the history behind those words, how they established were, you know, vary across different regions. So even in our speech. But of course, that's a very minor example. But again, it's understanding what that person means and how they mean that and then how to move forward from that. So I'll go back to because this is just a fascinating discussion you mentioned a climate migration nexus framework. Is this a concept? Is this something that's under development? Is this something we could go and take a look at? Yeah, there's a public. Yes, yes, that's a great question. So when I started my PhD, this publication came right out, right when I was determining my focus in my dissertation. It's um, uh, scholars from Yale, I believe. Uh, Their last names is Burroughs and Kinney. It was published in 2016. And they discussed climate migration conflict nexus. They, you know, wrote about it and they understood it. And I really latched onto that and dissected that and did a pilot project, which ended up being my focus um, in my last dissertation chapter that I'm actually trying to push out now about Kyrgyzstan. 
And I highlight more on the focus of, you know, what is ethnic conflict in this context, right? Using this framework. So I use that framework to guide me on what drivers I should focus on and selecting it into the spatial model that I I used. Now they're giving us a definition and terms and understanding that framework. And I'm using that framework as a data scientist, as a data modeler, as you can say, I wear many hats and understanding how that's guiding me in my decision-making process of what spatial analysis I'm going to use, what data I need to have, or what data I should consider. So these frameworks oftentimes are, you know, they define and clarify what indicators or definitions we're looking at. But again, depending on the researcher and their approach, how they approach it is different. So this is great because you have creative avenues of creating new ways of thinking about data collection, definitions, how to model something. Um, but and, and that's why research is wonderful. But at the same time, it does require a lot of people you know, congregating, discussing, and understanding how to improve these models. Because there's always, again, a, a level of bias or, you know, a level of error um, due to what we discussed before. You know, there's invisible populations not being accounted for. You know, this model does not acknowledge these certain inputs. It only focuses on this. Um, so these are, these are very important things to think about. But again, this is why interdisciplinary research right. is so important. I think you did a great job introducing or maybe reviewing this for some people who don't know or introducing it for others, this topic. Um, I know I've been very lucky and Terry's been lucky. And so is our team to have learned from you over the course of the last couple of weeks as we're preparing for this, an upcoming in-person event on climate migration, human security. I know you're planning to be there. What do you hope to get out of the event? What are you the most excited about for this upcoming event? Uh, well, thank you for having me help you with the event. I'm very excited about it. I'm excited that some folks I recommended are going to be at the event. So I think it's going to be an excellent event because it's a diversity of people when it comes to intersecting with this concept. So researchers from academia to people who are more on the policy side, as well as in the, se the private sector. So I, I'm hoping to learn. I feel believe that we're always learning something new every day. So for me, I want to learn, even though this is my field, it's my expertise, I'm still growing. But I also want to understand what people are thinking about. What are the new edgy, like cutting edge research or even just conversations that you see in Washington Post or New York Times? Like, what are people talking about? Why do people care about these things? Because, again, I was advised early on in my little mini research career that the most interesting topics are not only simple, as I mentioned before, but are the ones that are being discussed to the general population. The ones that are being addressed is like, hey, this is an issue. Oh, fascinating. That is what we should start looking at. Why is that fascinating? Why is this an issue for the general population? And then going from there, due to your expertise or due to your access or even curiosity, which is, you know, the sole core of research is, asking questions and then trying to answer those questions. Um, so this event, I think, will be great. And it's also in person, which is, you know, it's very exciting. Oh, we're <laughs> so excited about being in person and, and to meet you in person, too. That's going to be great. And to see the rest of the working group. Um, Chelsea, thank you so much for being here today and answering all of our questions and telling us all about this complex topic. Thank you for having me. I loved it. This is so fun. Thank you so much. I think I fall in that that uh, category, the more I've learned, the less I know. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely be there on the 15th of November. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, everyone, I hope you'll please join us in person at the National Museum of American Diplomacy in Washington, D.C., or online at the www.hd.org for our upcoming event on climate, migration, and human security on the 15th of November from 9 a.m. Eastern to 1 p.m. Eastern time. We're excited to hear from a series of experts who will discuss available data, as well as the gaps and challenges that the community faces related to the study of climate change's relationship with migration. You can find all the information you need about the webinar and how to access it at www.hgd.org. And please join us again for another conversation on human geography and human security on Through the Human Geography Lens. If you're interested in learning more about human geography and the WWHGD, check us out at www.hgd.org, where you can find more than 5,000 cataloged human geography datasets and access presentations and recordings for more than 50 data-driven events. I'm Gwyneth Holt. And I'm Terry Ryan. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. We really appreciate your support. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast, podcast platform. And we hope you'll share the podcast with your friends on social media. Thanks again for listening.